Amen. So we are in the book of First Peter, and Peter has written a letter uh, to the church about 20 or 25 years after the church began, um, because a whole group of Christians in his days are suffering persecution, are going through various trials and difficulties, wondering why uh, they're feeling the pressures that they're feeling, why they're going through the difficulties that they're going through. And so Peter writes a letter uh, with the purpose of answering the question of suffering in the Christian or suffering in the Christian life. Why and what place does it have? Now, as we've come through the introduction and through chapter 1, Peter has essentially uh, given us uh, so far a mindset uh, that, 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 that tells us who we are and what we have in Christ Jesus. He puts things back in perspective, lest in the middle of a difficult time, we should forget who we are and forget what we have. And so he uh, highlights that for us and says, don't forget the calling. Don't forget the fact that you've been chosen in him. Don't forget that he loves you and that he has a plan and that there's an eternity that's set forth uh, with your name on it, and it's reserved in heaven. It doesn't fade away. Don't forget those things when you're in a difficult time here in this this world. And then he gave to us the mentality of those that endure in the second half of the chapter. So as we come now into chapter 2, he's going to address one of the reasons that we suffer. And really, it's kind of like one of those things like if you could take um, a hundred different trials that, that someone could face in their life, you know, and we all have various things. Every one of us is going through something to some degree right now. And if you were going to take all the trials that a group of people can be going through and try to find a common denominator or a single way to explain without being insincere uh, what's going on in the life of the person that's suffering the trial, that's what Peter addresses in chapter 2. What he says in chapter 2 applies to every person and it applies to every trial in terms of the why when we ask why are we going through uh, the things that we're going through as Christians. And so he addresses the reason for our suffering and he also thankfully gives to us some wisdom as to how we can expedite the process. How can we get through it just a little bit faster, uh, the seasons of suffering that we go through as Christians? Now, he concluded chapter 1, and the reason I, I, I do this is because it ties into the beginning of chapter 2, with uh, the, the concept or the thought that we've been born again. And what Peter does is he borrows or takes the illustration that Jesus authored in John chapter 3 when he talked about the new birth or the spiritual birth that uh, is our salvation. You remember when Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, came to Jesus by night. And he was, uh, in his position and in his person, he was an opponent to Jesus, he was not one who was with him, but he was against him. So he came to him secretly because he had an internal struggle. His position required him to be against Jesus, but inside he knew that there was something to what this man was and what this man was doing. And so he came to Jesus by night and he said to him secretly, he said, teacher, we know that you're a teacher that's come from God because no one can do the things that you're doing unless God is with him. And, and Jesus looks at Nicodemus and his, his response to that address 
was that Jesus said, truly, truly, I say unto you, that unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He doesn't seek to identify who he truly is. He doesn't seek to identify the concern that Nicodemus has. He cuts right to the very core of the issue when it comes to the soul of a human being. And he says that unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he gets into a discussion with Nicodemus to seek to explain to him and give understanding as to what it means to be born again. And essentially what it means to be born again is that every one of us is born into this world in the flesh. But we must be born spiritually to redeem us back to God because of the relationship that was broken in the Garden of Eden. When Adam took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he spiritually died. He was cut off from the life of God and he was separated from him and he became a two-part being instead of a three-part being. He was body and soul or body and emotion, body and mind, but the spirit died. And when Jesus Christ took the sin of man upon himself and the veil in the temple was torn in half from the top to the bottom, the way was opened up and paid for for man to now come back into a relationship with God to be spiritually regenerated and to be born again. And so because of Jesus, we can be spiritually reborn. The relationship that was lost in the Garden of Eden can be restored through the person of Jesus Christ. And when we come into that relationship by professing our faith in that name, we're born again. And so Peter says that we've been born again. And he said that that happened because of the word of God, which he calls the seed of God's life at the end of chapter 1. And so the word of God was preached to us in some way. We heard the gospel and the seed of God's word was planted within us. That seed was germinated and it brought forth the new birth and thus we came into a relationship with God. And so the standing of every one of us that knows Jesus Christ and knows his forgiveness is that we've been born again. That's who we are. We're born again Christians. And so Peter now picks up on that theme and on that thought as we cross now into chapter 2 and he talks to us about what that means. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, wherefore, again, that word connecting what he has just finished with what he's about to say. In light of the fact that we've been born again, he says now laying aside, and that word literally means putting off or taking off or ridding of your life, putting off, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. And so in light of the fact that we've been born again, the first thing that we've been called to do is that we are to no longer live according to the flesh or according to the nature of the life that we lived prior to the new birth. We're to put all of that away. The entirety of what the old nature was is fallen under sin. When Adam died and we died in him, all of what we were and are became corrupted. 
And everything in the heart to the very inner core is touched and tainted by sin. And thus the only thing apart from Christ that we're capable of producing is evil and wickedness. And Peter sums up that wickedness into five words here. He says, first of all, malice, which means depravity. It means fleshiness. It means wickedness. And he says that we're to lay that aside. He says, secondarily, all guile. Guile means deceit, craftiness, and subsurface subtlety. It's the tendency that we have to be one thing on the inside that drives us and then have that stir in us all kinds of corrupt attitudes and behaviors to manipulate situations to get what they want. It means to be manipulative. We're to lay that aside. Third, he says, hypocrisies. The word hypocrisy means to act or to be double-faced or two-faced, meaning that what I am in public is different than what I am in private, or what people see when they look at me is different from what I really am on the inside. And he says, I'm no longer to live that way. That drove me before I knew Christ, but that's no longer to be the descriptive word in, in, in the vocabulary that describes who I am. Next, he says, envies. It literally means jealousies. That is coveting, wanting what someone else has or wanting what we don't have. And then finally, evil speakings, which is anything that comes out of our mouth that has any kind of a negative connotation to it. Defamation of someone else, slander, gossip, backbiting, all of those things that we are given to in our fallen nature, we're to, we're to consciously make the decision that we're going to put those things off. Just like we would be wearing a shirt that we don't like, we say, you know what, this shirt is, is no longer in vogue, this shirt no longer represents who I am as a person, and so I'm going to take this shirt off so that I could put on something else. And so we're to take everything that encapsulates the life of the old man and we're to put it off because we've been born again. The two things, the two people, the old and the new, are not to live side by side. One is to be crucified so that the other might live completely. And so he says, putting off all of these things. Now, in place of that, he goes on to say in verse 2, as newborn babes. Again, picking up on this theme that we are born again. It's a remarkable thing to think about this comparison between physical birth and spiritual birth. If you just think for a moment, if you can remember what it was like when you were in the womb. Anyone remember that? Me neither, you know. But when a baby is developing in the womb of its mother, it is fully alive and it is fully capable and it is fully equipped with every sense that it's going to need when it is birthed into the real world. Only none of those senses yet make sense, nor are they activated. A baby in the womb has the capacity and the ability to smell, but they don't know why and they don't know what it's for and they've never experienced it, but yet the sense is there. The baby in the womb has the faculties to see, but yet the baby is in complete and utter darkness, not able to see anything because that sense hasn't been activated yet and they're in darkness. There's been no light that's come into the eyes in order to make sense of anything that that sense was made for. The baby can hear, and of all the senses, that's perhaps the one 
that maybe is experienced while they're in the womb. They say that they recognize the voice of their mother, the people in their environment. That if you play music, you know, through headphones on the, you know, belly, that the baby can can hear it faintly, but as of yet, it doesn't make sense. There's nothing to connect it to, and so there's kind of this cognitive feeling that there's something happening, but they don't know why. It's not developed yet. The sense of touch, it's there. Everything that it will be used for already exists, but it doesn't make sense yet because it's never felt the feeling of a breeze blowing across the skin or of another human being touching it in some way. It only knows the confines of the womb, yet all of those things are there. And then in a moment, the birthing act takes place, and and in a flash of time, all five of those senses come to life immediately, simultaneously. All of a sudden, the faculty of smelling now makes sense as that first breath comes in. And the baby goes, this is a hospital. I hate hospital food. No, you know. But, but, but all of a sudden it's like, what in the world is this? This olfactory awakening, this reviving that's just happened in my life. The eyes are opened and all of a sudden there's lights and haze and fuzziness and faces and people and activity and, and there's sounds. There's beepings and, 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 and all this chaos and commotion and the screaming is, and, and all, it's all beginning. There's just this stimulus now as life comes in. And all of the senses that were there but didn't make sense now make sense. And the same thing is true in the spiritual sense. In the same way that we've been given a physical sense, there is a spiritual sense. And every lost person has the capacity to experience all of those senses, even though they've never experienced it yet. There is a seeing of that which is invisible. There is a hearing of that which is inaudible. There is a smelling or a sensing of something that is unknowable or undiscernible in the spiritual realm. There is a tasting that, that, that transcends human taste in the physical world. And there's a touching and a feeling of something, a sense of it that exists in the spiritual realm. And every human being has the capacity to experience all of those senses. And yet they don't make sense to the lost person. They lie awake at night knowing somehow inside that there's something more. They hear the muffled sounds of something coming from another world, but they can't discern it. It doesn't make sense. Intuitively and innately, every human being knows that there's a reason why I was made that's beyond just the physical five senses that I experience here in this world, but none of it makes sense now. But then a person comes to Christ. A person says yes to Jesus. They respond to the invitation and the knocking of the Holy Spirit and the conviction that's in the heart. They say, Jesus, I know I need you to be the Savior of my life and the forgiver of my sins. And I give my life to you and I receive your gift of salvation. And if you would save a sinner such as I, I would be saved. And God the Holy Spirit comes into that life. And in a moment of time, the faculty and ability and the potential to experience all of those things all of a sudden moves into the kinetic, it moves into the reality. And the spiritual eyes are open. And all of a sudden, you can see things that are invisible. There's a spiritual sense. It's not a physical sight, but there's a spiritual sight. All of a sudden, the inaudible, somewhat audible muffle of spiritual things begins to resonate and ring true. And language from another world begins to make sense within the soul. 
The discernment and the sense of good and evil, of truth and error, all of a sudden it moves from the realm of concept to the realm of reality as things begin to make sense, as the sense of it becomes alive. The ability to taste the things of heaven. The, be able, the ability to take something in that's spiritual in nature and to be able to discern what it is and say, this is good, I should have this. That's bad, I shouldn't have that. That tastes good, that tastes bad. And now I know the difference, it makes sense. The ability to feel the presence of God, something that before was such a mystery. And so when a person is born again, Now they have this life in them that before was only a concept. It was only potential, but now it's reality. And you know what has to happen for a baby to become full grown and mature in both the physical and in the spiritual? It needs to eat. It needs to be fed. It needs to develop. And so Peter tells us here, therefore, as newborn babes, as those that have come out of darkness now into the glorious light of God, as those that have moved from the realm of dead to now being alive, from those that have been lost to those that are now saved, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. From Genesis to Revelation, God likens His Word, His written Word recorded here on the pages of Scripture before us, as spiritual food that serves to develop and mature the senses of the spiritual man, or the spiritual life inside of each one of us. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11, the prophet Isaiah, speaking by the Spirit of God, says this. In fact, God says this. He says, for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and returns not thither, but waters the earth and makes it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. God says that my word is going to accomplish the thing that I have sent my word to do and nothing is going to be able to stop it from accomplishing its purpose. And what Peter is telling us here is that one of the purposes of God sending forth his word is that it would be spiritual food that would cause a believer to come into spiritual maturity and spiritual depth and spiritual understanding. And so he tells us that it's our responsibility now to take in the word that we might grow. The word of God is often likened unto milk. The milk of a mother that is predigested food, easily translated to give nourishment to a baby in a way that they can rapidly grow. And we're to desire the milk of the word. The milk is all, or the word is also likened unto bread. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The manna in the Old Testament that fell in the days of Moses was a type or a picture of the word of God that came down from God to give life into the world. And so we're to take in the bread of the word. Later, the word of God is likened unto meat. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, he says, For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. 
but strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use, using the word, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So what's the point? The point is this. That as Christians, we are called to give ourselves to taking in the word of God as constantly and consistently as we possibly can. And the result of that is that we're going to grow in our Christian faith and experience and our relationship with God. Our senses spiritually are going to be developed and so we'll be able to see the invisible with more clarity. We'll be able to hear the inaudible with more sensitivity. We'll be able to taste what is right and what is wrong, discerning what is good and what is evil. We will have wisdom in the circumstances that we face to know this is what's going on here and I can see behind the visible and understand the spiritual behind what's moving and what's driving this force. We'll have a sense of smell, discernment spiritually. And we'll be able to feel what is going on, the presence of the Lord or the presence of evil. The sensitivity to spiritual things will develop as we give ourselves to the Word of God. And so he tells us that we're to desire the sincere milk of the word so that we might grow. By the way, this is a promise from scripture. You say, I'm not growing as a Christian or I've hit a plateau. Do you know what you need to do? Dig further into the word of God. Get back to the word of God. Give yourself to the consistent intaking of the scriptures. And the Bible says that it will cause us to grow. You will grow according to the word of God. Now, Peter attaches this tagline to it, this stipulation in verse 3. He says, if so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And I think there's a wink in Peter's mind as he pens these words. And he just says, if so be that you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. And I think here's what Peter's saying here. He's saying that any person that's truly been born again, that has tasted the word of God and knows it to be the power that it is, is not going to be able to quickly or easily deny its place in their life. I believe that if a person is truly saved, one of the markers of that salvation is that there is going to be a hunger for the word of God in that person. I greatly question the salvation of a person who says that they're saved, but they have no desire or interest in the scriptures. Because I think it's automatic. I've never seen a baby, at least a healthy one, that isn't desirous of its mother's milk and then of its mother's number one Gerber and then number five Gerber and then whatever food it can get its hands on, you know. It's a sign of health when a baby eats. And it's a sign of spiritual health when a Christian is given to the things of the Word of God. I know for me personally, when I came to Jesus, there was nothing you could do to keep me away from the Bible. It was just, I couldn't get enough of it. I needed more. I needed to see. I needed to know God. I needed to know how the truths tied together. And still to this day, there's nothing more satisfying than the Word of God. And if the thing that we need to question ourselves, if we have no appetite for the Word of God, it's either because we have yet to truly give our lives to Him, or it's that we've so filled ourselves with other things that are not the Word of God, that there's no room left in our mind or in our capacity or our heart take in the spiritual food that God's provided for us. Either way, there's a problem there. But if you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, then feast upon the word of God. Continue growing in it. That's what we need to do. He says then, he shifts gears from food to stones. Verse 4. He says, to whom, that is Jesus, coming, 
as unto a living stone. He calls Jesus here a living stone. That's a very interesting way to personify the person of Jesus Christ. But he's taking it right out of the Bible. He's quoting from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, where the psalmist there, speaking of the Messiah, says, this is the Lord's doing, or verse 22, the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner, the chief cornerstone. For this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And Peter is taking this Old Testament reference to the coming Messiah, and he's applying it to Jesus Christ here. And he says that we've come to him in this salvation as though we have come to a living stone. You see, well, why is Peter employing this illustration and then applying it to our lives? What does this have to do with the Christian in our day? He says concerning him that he is disallowed or rejected indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. That is, that the cornerstone of Christ was carefully selected by God to be exactly what he is. And precious means extremely rare. In fact, there's not anything else like, or anyone else like, the person of Jesus Christ. And then he says this in verse 5. He says, you also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Not only is Jesus the living stone that we have come unto, but the Bible says now that we've been born again, that we also are living stones as well. So what gives? What is the illustration? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, the Apostle Paul phrases it this way. He says that we, actually I'll start in verse 19. He says, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom, in Christ, All the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. And so what's the illustration here that Peter is employing in this whole thing? He's saying that Jesus is carefully selected by God, chosen and precious, to be the chief cornerstone in this house that God is building. You say, what is the house that God is building and that Paul refers to in Ephesians? Remember when Jesus was with Peter and the apostles in Caesarea Philippi? And he asked the question, he said, who do men say that I am? And they all gave their insight. Some say Elijah, some Jeremiah, whatever. And then Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Peter says, or Jesus says, bingo, Peter, you've got it. And he said, upon this rock, this little stone, or this rock, this profession that you just made, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so the building 
that the Old Testament is referring to, the building that Ephesians is referring to, the building that Peter is referring to, of whom it says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone and that you and I are the living stones that make up its walls, is speaking of this spiritual, invisible building that we call the church. And he says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Now, why is that significant? What does it have to do with us as living stones? And absolutely, what does it have to do with the fact that I'm suffering here tonight? And Peter is seeking to encourage me in it. It has everything to do with it, and here's why. When a building would be constructed, when it would be erected, the very first and most important thing that would happen is that the cornerstone would be set in its place. The cornerstone became the foundation and the measurement whereby all the other stones would be put in their place and shaped. And so the cornerstone would be set, and from the place that the cornerstone would be, lines would be drawn off, strings would be carried, measured in order to obtain squareness or obtain dimensions according to the cut of the stone. From there, distance would be measured and points would be made. And then new lines would be drawn off of there to the left or to the right and even up and down vertically. And, and, and the building would be laid out according to the dimensions of the cornerstone. Then, as the individual rocks would come from the quarry, they would be cut in order to fit in their place according to the blueprint that's been established and that is being measured by the setting of that cornerstone. And so why is the cornerstone so important? Because it sets plumb, level, and square for the accuracy of the rest of the building. What Peter is saying to you and I here is that we are living stones that are being built up in order to occupy a place in the structure, the spiritual structure that's intended to inhabit the Spirit of God. So what? Here's what. If we come into this world full of malice, full of envy, full of hypocrisy, full of guile, full of evil speaking, there's a whole lot of things that have to be removed from us in order for us to fit the standard and take the shape of what will fit within the wall of his house. And the process of that cutting and shaping of the stones is a painful process, isn't it? As God cuts and shapes these things out of our lives. And so Peter says we are living stones and we're being built up to be a holy habitation, a holy priesthood intent to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now notice what he says in verse 6. He says, wherefore it is also contained in the scripture, or this is why it is also contained in the scripture. And he quotes now from Isaiah he says, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, the believer, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, now quoting again from Psalm 118, the same is be, is, is, has become the headstone of the corner and a stone of stumbling and rock of offense even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient whereunto they also were appointed. There is a tradition, and although it isn't um, given to us in Scripture, 
It's held very highly that it is, uh, in fact, history. That when they were constructing Solomon's temple, the stones that would make up the walls and the foundation of, of Solomon's temple were quarried in a mountain. In fact, the mountain where they were quarried from was Golgotha, the place where Jesus was crucified. And then they were shipped over to the place where the temple was being built And the idea behind that process was that no tool and no sound was to be made while the temple was being constructed. But the stones were to be carefully cut according to their measurement in the quarry so that they could be placed complete, prepared on the temple mount with grace and with silence, with ease. And so the tradition is that early on in the process, when the first shipment of stones was brought in, The chief cornerstone was in that first shipment. But it didn't make sense to the builders because it didn't look like a stone that should fit somewhere in the structure. It was odd in its in its dimensions, in its shape, and in its size. And they couldn't figure out where it went. And so they took this odd-shaped stone that didn't look like any of the others, and they just hucked it into the valley of Kidron, which was right there. They just got rid of it because it was in the way. They couldn't figure out what it was for. And then they went on and they put everything else in place and the stones would be cut, quarried and brought into to, to the, you know, the place. And they built the entire temple. And when the whole thing was over, they had everything except the chief cornerstone that was missing. And so they sent message back to the quarry and they said, we're missing the chief cornerstone. You never sent it. And they said, no, no, we sent it a long time ago, way back at the beginning. You should have it. And somebody remembered, like, hey, remember that stone that didn't fit anywhere that we just kind of hucked off into the valley? And so they went in search for it. They found it. They brought it back up into place, and it fit perfectly into the, into the place where the chief cornerstone was supposed to go. So it became a, a, a parable, a proverb that did make it into the scripture, that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And it became a type of Christ. Why? Because when Jesus came into the world, he was not recognized by the Jewish establishment as the Messiah that he was. They looked at him and they couldn't figure him out. They thought that Jesus should be a part of what they were. He should be a Pharisee. He should be a part of the ruling class. He should be born into aristocracy. And he should be more like a king and less like a pauper. And they looked at this man who was common and plain, who was humble, who made his dwelling place among sinners, who took pleasure to be among common people, who was born in a barn, born of a virgin. Nothing made sense concerning who this man was that some people were purporting to be the Messiah. And so as a nation, they rejected him. Into the Kidron Valley, the place of blood, he was crucified, he was rejected. And right now, this whole house of God's temple, his spiritual house, is being built. And someday the Jews will realize, when Jesus comes the second time, that he is the headstone of the corner. The stone that the builders rejected has become the headstone of the corner. To them that he rejected him, they've stumbled. They're still lost. But to us who believe, he's chosen, he's precious. Why? Because he's the measurement by which we base everything that God is doing within our lives. He's the measurement whereby we prove out the behaviors and standards that are acceptable to God for us. 
He's the one whereby we know whether or not something is acceptable or something is to be detestable or rejected. It's through Him that we grow. It's through Him that we're built up. It's in Him that we find stability and security for our lives. Peter uses three words in the passage that we've already read that highlight what God is doing in our lives right now. The first word is given in verse 2 where he says that we are growing. The second word is given in verse 5 where it says that we're built up. And the third word is in verse 6 where it says that we are not confounded or confused. And for any person who has set Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone in their heart and is seeking to be shaped and modeled according to the pattern and example that he gives, that person is going to grow That person is going to be successfully shaped into what God wants them to be. And that person is going to do that in a state of peace, not being confused about the state of their life. Every one of us here that is in the right place spiritually is growing, being built up, and eventually, hopefully, we come to a place where we're not confounded or confused as we recognize what he's doing. Growing carries pain, doesn't it? Shaping, cutting, feels like something, doesn't it? And part of the reason for the sufferings that we're enduring and going through as Christians is because of that growing and cutting process as God shapes us into stones that we're supposed to be. But ultimately, when we realize what God is doing and why these things are happening to us, it causes confusion in our minds to be settled into a state of peace as we recognize He's in control even though it doesn't make sense to me now. Earlier this week, I was uh, over in Patterson on the other side of the county, and my son had a, a, a sports practice there, and I had an hour to kill, and I was longing for some time with just Jesus. And there's right by the place where he was practicing, there's a, um, a, a like kind of a, a, a swamp area that's kind of cut off from people, and you can kind of walk in there and hike, and I spent some time with the Lord and I had a really good time, and the reason why it was special to me is because I lived over there for a number of years. And the, the years that I lived on that side of the county, this is going back now um, quite a ways for someone my age. To, I can say quite a ways because I'm not that old, you know. But, but, I, but I remember that phase of my life when I lived over there, and it was an extremely confusing time. And, and I look back at it now with fondness, but I also look back at that time with a great deal of regret. And the reason I have regret during that time is because I spent so many hours and days and weeks and months and even years during that time worried about what God was doing in my life that I failed to recognize all the blessings that were in my life during that time and the things that God was doing. Looking back now over those years, I see that God had me in his hand very perfectly all that time. He was doing things so perfectly and so successively, and I was right in the center of his will. But because I was growing and because I was being cut and because I was being developed and didn't have the experience to know that yet, I lived in a constant state of worry and anxiety. God, am I where I'm supposed to be? When is this going to end? When am I going to get to? How is this going to happen? How did I get here? And in my mind, everything felt like a mistake. Whereas in his sight, everything was happening perfectly according to his schedule and according to his plan. And if I could go back and relive those days, I would have enjoyed it a whole lot more. 
Because now I look back and I see all the blessings of it. The people that I got to meet, the places that I went, the places that I worked, the jobs that I got to do, the training that I was receiving for so many things that I had no idea was going on. And if I could have just realized then what God was doing and had the faith to see it, confounding or confusion would have been peace. The good news is, now there's a little bit of experience. And now, when things happen, when trials come, I can look back on that and say, God, you know what you're doing. There's clarity. There's peace. I don't see the outcome of it all yet, but I know that I'm in your will. I know that I'm in your hand. What's the point? The point is that wherever you are tonight, if you're in Christ, He knows right where you are. You're growing. You're being shaped. You're being developed. And the things that are happening in your life right now, every circumstance, every trial, every difficulty, is measured, calculated, and known by Him. And it's being used according to his purpose that we might be who we're supposed to be, where we're supposed to be, when we're supposed to be there, equipped and ready to do what he's called us to do at that time. And there's peace in that. We will not be confounded. So how do we give ourselves fully and completely to what it is that he has called us to be? That's what Peter gives us now as we move into verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. To just think about the things that Peter says that we are in those words right there. He tells us that we are chosen. Just like the word he used back in verse 4 when he said that Jesus was a chosen stone. We also are chosen. Every one of us was cut out of the quarry of this world's rock on purpose to fit a place within his will and within his kingdom. We've been chosen by God. We're a chosen generation. What does that mean? It means that God has his mind and his eye on this generation right now, just like he has on every other generation that has passed. That gives me boldness to pray that God would move by his spirit in our generation. In every generation, we have the entitlement to one of two things. Either a massive outflowing and outpouring of God's Spirit or the second coming of Jesus Christ. In every generation, one of those two things is going to happen if we ask for it. Because God said there's either going to be a showing up of His Spirit and reviving a generation or He's going to wrap the whole thing up because it's come so wicked that it's time for Jesus to return. But We have the boldness to pray, God, we're a generation that can seek Your face a generation that can expect that you're going to move and revive and reach. He says also a royal priesthood. We've been called kings and priests unto our God and to his name. We're a holy nation and a peculiar people, a special treasure. We are peculiar. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, we're Christians, right? We're strange. <laughs> but that's not what God is saying to us. He's saying that we're special, that we're a special treasure chosen by him and we have the intent purpose that we should show forth the praises or the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light he's called us out of darkness in the world and he's called us into salvation for the purpose that we should show forth the excellency or the praises of him that is that we're to be a reflection of his purpose and his person in the world. Which, he says in verse 10, in time past were not a people, 
But now we are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now we have obtained mercy. So what Peter now does is he he tells us what we're to do in order that we might obtain that special place that God's called us to occupy. Verse 11, he says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you or I beg you as strangers and pilgrims in this world, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. The first thing that Peter bids us to do if we're to give ourselves to this process of growing and shaping is that we're to abstain from the former lusts that we gave ourselves to in the old life of Adam or the flesh. He says that they war against the soul. They're like water on fire. God is seeking to bring fire into our lives in order to bring forth a substance. And when we give ourselves to the old things of the flesh, it's like dousing that fire with water and the two things are frustrating one to another. When we seek as Christians to feed the old man at the same time we're feeding the new man, we stunt the growth of the new man and make it impossible. Some of the reason why some of us aren't growing in our faith is for this very thing. We want to grow, we're reading the Bible, but we say, I'm not growing and I'm getting nothing from it. It could very well be it's because there's too much of the old life that's being fed at the same time. Peter says, abstain. This isn't our home. That life is dead. Put those things away. The second thing he says in verse 12, he says, having your conversation or your lifestyle honest among the Gentiles. The word honest there means beautiful, excellent, and admirable. That there's to be something that's admirable about our lives to those that look in on the outside so that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold or see, glorify God in the day of visitation or the day that God visits them. Now, how many in this room, before you were Christians, be honest by showing of hands, slandered Christians in some way? Made fun of them. I know I did. I hated Christians before I became one. And any word that you could give me, I I knew them all. Fundies, you know, for fundamentalists. Born-againers, you know, uh, Bible thumpers. and, And I would use them. I would speak evil against Christians. And And the amazing thing, the amazing thing is that there were a handful of true Christians that I could say nothing against. I could, you know, I could say the words, but inside I knew that they were walking the walk and I could speak nothing against it. And I remember the witness that they laid out in my life by their behavior that testified to me that this Jesus thing is absolutely real and legitimate. And on the day that God visited me and came into my life and saved me, those were the lights that led the way for me. I knew that it was real because of them. And what Peter is saying here is he's saying, listen, part of what Jesus is seeking to bring forth in your life is that there's an alignment between what the Bible says a Christian is and with what you and I are. So that when people finally come to the realization of who God is, they have an example somewhere that's been laid out for them in a person. Let that be you and I, that we might declare to the world moral excellence with our lifestyle. 
He says in verse 13, not only are we to abstain from fleshly lusts and live honest, excellent lives among the Gentiles, but he says that we're to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. That is that we're to obey man's law as though it were God's law and we're to live civilly under man's ordinances. Whether it be, he says, the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. So from the king all the way down to the police officer and the traffic person who's directing traffic, we're to be obedient to all of the authorities that are put in place and we're to do that as unto the Lord. Whether we agree or not, with the laws and the ordinances that are put forth. That's, that's something that God asks of us that it might be a credit to our witness for Him. He says, For so is the will of God, this is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. So not only are we to obey the ordinance of men, but we're to protect the sacred liberty that's been entrusted to us as Christians. We are free as Christians. Galatians chapter 5 says that it is for freedom that we've been set free. When Jesus ransomed us with his blood on the cross of Calvary, and he purchased us out of the slave market, He didn't purchase us so that we would be his slaves in his household, but he purchased us for the sake of setting us free. We are the freest of all people. But yet we're not to use that freedom, Peter tells us here, as a cloak for maliciousness. That is, we're not to say, well, I'm free in Christ, and so I'm going to exercise my liberty by giving myself to carnal, fleshly, sinful things or to disobey man's law because I submit to a higher authority that is God, I answer to him. But rather, we're to give ourselves to the ordinances of God and we're to protect the liberty that we have and be good stewards over it. He then goes on to say in verse 17 that we're to honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king, whether he's a Democrat or a Republican. Then he goes on to say that we're to embrace the daily grind of life. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the perverse or the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience towards God endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Now every one of us knows what it's like to hold a job where we have a good boss, and we know what it's like to hold a job where we have a bad boss, right? And what Peter is saying here is, listen, when you have a good boss, it might be easier to submit and to serve. But he's saying, listen, all the more so when you're serving a tyrant, when you're serving someone who is heavy-handed or serving someone who's unfair or serving someone that takes advantage of you maybe because you're a Christian or exploits your Christianity in some way. He says, serve them with the same fervency you would serve Jesus Christ. He says, for what glory is it if when you are buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently? There's, if, you, if you get in trouble at work because you're being lazy or because you're you know, not doing your job, he's saying there's no glory in the, the pain that you suffer at the hand of your employer. But if when you do well, you suffer for it. 
and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. What he's saying is this. Don't let your guard down when you're at work. Be fully and as much a Christian when you're on the job as you would be anywhere else. Understand that you're being watched and that you're under the spotlight and that your witness is making a difference while you're being treated in an unfair way. One of the reasons why God lets difficult things happen to Christians is so that unbelievers can watch the way we handle it. You ever notice that? Like when we go through a sickness, something that's too heavy for us, when we go through family troubles, when our marriage is being difficult, when we have kids that aren't behaving the way that we want, or if you apply it to the immediate context that Peter is presenting before us here, you're on the job and you're seeking to do your best and you're trying to balance out all of life like everyone else and your boss just decides, you know what, that person's a Christian, that person carries a Bible with them, they profess they've got a tattoo of a Bible verse somewhere on their body or something and you know what, I'm going to just turn the heat up a little bit and see what happens. And you don't even know that they're thinking that way. And so they expect things of you that are beyond what's in your job description. Or they expect time from you that under fairer conditions it wouldn't be reasonable for you to have to give. Or they treat you in a way that's unequal with the way that they treat everyone else and it's heavy-handed and unjust. Peter says, be aware. It's quite possible that God is allowing that to happen in the situation and the circumstance that you're in because they're proving out the truth of your testimony. Is Jesus Christ real in your life? And will you bear under the persecution patiently or can I squeeze a reaction out of you? Peter says, be careful. Keep your guard up. You're a Christian even when you're at work. Now, verse 21 through 25, the closeout of the chapter. The glorious thing about all of this is that we have an example in the person of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in concluding. He says, For even hereunto were you called, that because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. No matter what it is that you're suffering, and no matter what circumstances bringing that pain within your life, understand that Jesus is the supreme example of patience and endurance under suffering. Notice what it says in verse 22. It says, first of all, who did no sin? So what does that mean? It means that when we look at the cornerstone by which we are measured in this building, we see in that cornerstone that there was no sin at all. It has the mark of being cut. Sin is cut out. There's a line that pierces right through where sin would be on the one side and the sin is missing when we look at the cornerstone of Christ. As our example, he's absolutely sinless. So that means God is working in my life right now to circumcise sin out of my life. If I'm going to line up with the cornerstone, then he wants to remove sin from me. So suffering is at work in my life because God is removing sin. He also says concerning Christ that no guile was found in his mouth. Now that's not normal, is it? 
Guile is part of the human condition. It's part of the human nature, but it's not in Christ. That means our cornerstone is cut in such a way that guile is cut out. And so maliciousness, evil, depravity is cut out. That's something that God is seeking to cut out of our lives. He says also, verse 23, who when he was reviled, he reviled not again. That is, when insults were cast upon Christ, he didn't return those insults with insults or with reviling. That's not normal, is it? What's human nature when someone reviles us? If you make a mistake in traffic and you make a right-hand turn and you probably should have waited, you know, for that person that's already moving in that road to, to go. But you just kind of miscalculated and you honestly weren't trying to cut them off. You just did it, right? You went. And they honk and blare and cut. By the way, I'm sorry for doing that to you. If that was you, I, I have a tendency. If I, anyway, confession, honesty, you know. But when that person goes, and they, and they, you know, putting their hands out the window and the whole thing, what's our tendency? do you know who I am? You know, sometimes my wife will gently say to me, you know, they they didn't realize someone as important as you was traveling (laughs) this way. And I'll just, I'm Christ-like, I'm not going to reply to that. You know, I'm just, I know, honey, I know. My my attorney didn't contact their attorney and tell them I was coming this way, you know. (laughs) But it's human nature, isn't it, that when we're reviled, we want to revile in return. But Jesus, that's not his way. It's been cut out of his life, circumcised out. There's an example there. There's something that I'm to look at and say, God, I'm still crooked. There's still things in me that need to change. It says that when he was threatened, he threatened not, but he committed himself to him that judges righteously. Even when he stood before Pontius Pilate and Pilate said to him, don't you know that I have authority to crucify you or I have authority to release you? Jesus didn't look back and say, do you know what I have authority to do in your life? Pilate? Is that what they call you? That's what we would do, isn't it, if we were God? But it's not Jesus. Instead, what did he do? It says that he committed himself to him that judges righteously. He said, my place is to yield to the will of him that sent me. This world is not my home. This kingdom is not my kingdom. And therefore, I will entrust myself completely to him. I'll let him fight my battles and determine my course. That's the cornerstone that you and I are being cut after. And the things that God is allowing to come into our lives that are painful to us, that we feel are grinding, (laughs) cutting, growing pains, He's seeking to shape us after the model of the example that we've been given. The chief cornerstone. Who, His own self, bear our sins in His own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. God is so committed to raising us uh, into this likeness and this purpose. He proved it by purchasing us with His blood. For you were as sheep going astray, but now returned unto the shepherd and the bishop of your souls. Do you know what we call a sheep that was going astray? We call it a dead sheep. 
Because sheep without a shepherd have absolutely no protection, no guidance, no defense mechanism. And it's only a matter of time before they either walk off a cliff or walk face to face into the jaws of a wolf or of some predator or some lion and they will be torn in pieces because they are directionless. And Peter says that's what every one of us was prior to our coming to Christ. But now, because of his blood, because of his mercy, we are being grown up, we're being built up, we're being settled and shaped to a place in him, and we've returned to the shepherd. A shepherd is one who leads the way because he's already gone before us. And a bishop, a bishop is one who has the intelligence and the administrative ability to know what's best for us and to make decisions for our lives accordingly. And that's the one whom we serve. And so Peter's point is that we are in good hands. He's growing, he's shaping, he's refining, he's removing, he's leading, he's blessing, he's doing things that we're unaware of, and therefore we can trust him. Now, as we close, and Ashley can come as we wrap up our service tonight, there's two proper responses to the word that we've heard here in Second or First Peter chapter 2. The first is for the Christian. The Christian person that's here tonight and then says, God, I'm living in a place where I'm not sure that I'm growing. In fact, I feel more like I'm in a place of stagnancy in my, my Christian experience than a place of maturity or place of growth. God, I don't feel like I'm being built up into a place of of your habitation or of your presence. In fact, God, your presence has become so foreign to me, I don't know if I'd recognize it if it hit me in the face. To those of us that find ourselves in that position tonight, the proper response to tonight's message is that we would say, Spirit, search my heart and find the things in me, the fleshly lusts that I've been feeding into. The places of the old man, the malice, the guile, the hypocrisies, the envies, the evil speakings, those fleshly old things that I've been seeking to nurse and nurture along with the life of the new man, God, they have stunted my growth. And they've brought me into a place of confusion when I could be in a place of peace. He doesn't long for us at all to be in that place. And the answer and the solution is that we take those things in our lives and we lay them at the foot of the cross and we say, God, take these things from me. I don't even know what to do with them, Lord. But I know what they are. I know what the spiritual non-conductor is in my heart that has estranged me from your presence. I know what the affection is that has grown so far outside of my control that it has choked the spiritual life out of me and put my lamp out to where there used to be a flame and now it's just a smoldering. God, I know what it is, but I don't know what to do with it. And the answer is, lay it at the foot of the cross. Lay it at his feet. Give it to him and say, God, take all of my heart. Let nothing be held back. The other is the person here that doesn't yet know Jesus Christ. What you are, according to Peter, is that you are a sheep that has gone astray. And it's only a matter of time before the clutches of the lion tear your life to shreds. But there is a shepherd and a bishop of your soul who loved you so much that he laid down his life on a cross 2,000 years ago spilled out his blood in order to purchase you at the quarry 
and make you a stone that knows his presence. And that invitation is as alive and real for you today as it was all throughout this past 2,000 years. And I would bid you to receive him as your Savior. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would take the things that we've heard, that you sow, sow them in our hearts, and you'd cause us, Lord, to experience the reality of your presence in your life in us. There's so much, Lord, that needs to take place. We have so far to go. We've also come so far. And we pray, Father, that you'd complete what you've begun. So have your way in us, Lord. Change us from the inside out. Take the things that no longer belong. Make us like Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen.